Hello and welcome to the Danielle Newnham podcast where I interview tech founders and innovators to share the inspiring human stories behind the game-changing tech we use every day. Today I wanted to close out series 11 with a recap of the wonderful guests we've had on from Mike Slade and James Vincent who both worked for many years with Steve Jobs to Sarita Challenger who taught us about the importance of storytelling and how to cope after trauma. And that's something us founders don't talk much about, how to cope better, whether it's trauma, which drives so many of us, or the pain of simply building a startup with all the obstacles that comes with it. One action that I have found helpful is journaling. And I have just started using Rosebud, which makes it easy for anyone to build and maintain an impactful journaling practice. The number one AI-powered journaling app for mental health and personal growth. I have been using Rosebud for over a week now and have already found clarity on some sticky situations. Partly because instead of just writing my issues down in a physical journal, I am able to tell Rosebud what the issue is and then the app prompts me to go deeper, which causes me to reflect more before offering some surprisingly good solutions which have helped me both in my personal and my work life. I now do this practice every day, setting my morning intention for the day and then an evening reflection and I found it has made me happier and more productive for four simple reasons. And my friends, they are... Number one, I have to set my intentions by typing them into Rosebud at the beginning of the day, which helps me to visualise my day. And you'll be surprised how useful that can be. Number two, it forces me to set my priorities for the day and make them front and centre. Number three, it urges me to note what obstacles I have to overcome that day, which encourages me to not shy away from them. And number four, Rosebud is able to take what I say are my priorities and my obstacles and then offer practical solutions with warm advice. It is literally like a friendly therapist guiding me through my day. In fact, due to the speed at which Rosebud responds to my issues with extremely wise advice and human-like, I might add, it's hard to believe I don't actually have a human therapist responding to me in real time. Like I said, I am a big fan of Rosebud. I think it's brilliant and I think you will like it too. So if you want to try it out yourself, head to the link in my show notes for today to try it for free. And do let me know what you think. I'm always keen to hear how you find the products that I recommend. Now, back to today's episode. To end Series 11, I wanted to share some great clips from all eight episodes. And first up, we have a snippet from Mike Slade, who is the only person that I'm aware of to have worked with three of tech's giants. They are Bill Gates, Steve Jobs and Paul Allen, who co-founded Microsoft. And in this clip, he shares the lessons he learned from both Bill and Steve. What lessons did you take from each of them, would you say? Bill's probably the smartest person I've ever met. He's a brilliant processor of information. He's incredibly hardworking and disciplined and has high executive function. He's not disorganized. He's super organized about everything. He's the best person at synthesizing and explaining complicated things I've ever met in my life, more than any professor or than anyone. When Bill explains something to you that he's learned about, you don't need to read all the book. I mean, unless he's bullshitting, which could happen once in a while, but he's so good at synthesizing information and it's so fun to know stuff. It sounds so obvious, right? Mm. One time we were playing this tennis thing down in the desert and Bill was talking about something and giving a speech to like 50 guys, all of them were super successful guys. And we came back to the table afterwards and this one guy looks at Bill and he goes, how do you know all this stuff? Well, 
So I goes, there are these things made of paper with words on them. And you can buy them. They're called books. Satirical wit, which is another thing I love about the guy because I'm the same way. So that, I guess that's one thing I really learned from Bill. Uh, you know, Steve, of all the things I learned from Steve, I guess the one that is the most powerful is that I don't know about you, but I'm kind of a pleaser, right? I want to please people and make them happy and take care of them. And Steve Jobs was the opposite. He's like, he wanted people to know what he thought. And so he never sugarcoated shit to make people feel good. He just told them what he thought because it's more efficient, right? And so it really helped me be courageous about being blunt. You don't have to be mean to be blunt, right? And Steve would do things that were so blunt to people in business meetings and it wouldn't backfire. It would work. I was always fascinated by, he'd tell somebody something about them or their business that you'd think like, oh, I would never say that. And the guy would thank him because he was right, you know, mm. like going to therapy or something. And so after that, when I ran my own company, I realized yeah. that, you know, being blunt is a gift. It's not a, a bad thing. It's a good thing because you don't get very much blunt feedback into the business world or even in your personal life, right? Mm. And so when you do... It's kind of a gift because you found out something you wouldn't have otherwise known, right? And that's mm -hmm. up to you if you're going to act on it. And then the other thing about Steve I found, and this will sound really weird, is that I always felt like when I worked at Microsoft, like there was something wrong with me because I couldn't figure out my work-life balance. Like I was too obsessed with work. And then I worked for Steve. I realized that like, no, that's good. Looks <laughs> like, no, 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 this is good. Being crazy and passionate is the lesser of two evils. At least you're passionate about something. So right. Mm. Uh, yeah. So it's funny. I realized that not having work-life balance and being completely fucked up about it isn't all bad. I know that mm. sounds weird, but like, I was like, no, no, this is good. Right. Cause it means that you care and you're passionate and you're going to give it all and increases the likelihood of success. And, you know, now with work from home and zoom and stuff, you know, there's no such thing as work-life balance anyway, but this is back then. Sounds like he gave you so much in the time that you spent with him. It was the greatest move I ever made. It cost me millions of dollars. And it was the greatest thing I ever did. So I never would have been a CEO if I hadn't gone to work for Steve. I would have just been a middle manager at Microsoft and probably taken up a hobby or something. It's the greatest thing that ever happened to me in the sense that of turning me into who I am. And it's no, seriously, it really was. And he was a very loyal friend. That's the other thing that was just shocking to me was after I stopped working for him, he was such a loyal friend till the end. It was unbelievable what a loyal friend he was. Next up is Dame Stephanie Shirley an incredible tech entrepreneur and philanthropist. Having escaped the Nazi regime as a child, Dame Stephanie settled in the UK, where she founded an all-women software company that pioneered remote working and redefined the expectations and opportunities for working women at that time. It was ultimately valued as a business at almost $3 billion and made 70 of her staff millionaires when it was sold. In this clip, she discusses what makes a great entrepreneur. Well, I don't think it's the money motivation, which is what's always quoted in what one reads. But the motivation seems, it seems to work best for an entrepreneur when we find something that we really care about. We focus on it and let the money follow the pleasure that we get from doing that. So, you know, I went into software because that's what I loved. Unfortunately, in entre entrepreneurs, it's the first thing also I stopped doing. Because after a very short period of time, I was dealing with cash flow and the HR problems and all the hassle of running a business. And I was paying other people to write the software. That is what happens for most entrepreneurs. You've mentioned in the book about this depression that you felt. 
Can you tell me what hold it had over you? What helped you on the path to recovery? Well, my depression came very much from survivor um, guilt, which leads to depression. And it was quite serious. I had um, six years of analysis to get myself out of that. Um, I did later on have a breakdown, but that was probably not um, depression. What seems, well, I, I do believe in analysis to help people out. So really, the talking therapies. Don't terribly believe in pills, but if, if you really are depressed, it's much better to take them and get yourself to a good place again and then uh, wean yourself off. But the thing that I really have found helps with depression is compassion. And that's why I find that my f philanthropic work, I get just as much as I give. And I, I would recommend that sort of activity. Helping others is a good antidote to depression. Can you tell me about your philanthropy work? Well, my philanthropy has gone to the two things that I know and care about, and that's information technology and uh, autism, which is my late son's disorder. The majority of it has gone to autism. Now, your um, listeners, readers, audience will probably be more interested in the IT side. So I set up um, a livery company in the city of London. That was a sort of £5 million project in about, about 25 years ago now. Um, I set up the Oxford Internet Institute. And then I did a series of projects which included both computing and autism. Um, for example, some virtual reality projects uh, up in Nottingham University, which were there to teach people with autism um, how to find their ways around. It was a virtual city, how to find things like how to find a seat on a bus, things that most people just take for granted. But children with autism have to be taught how to do that. Otherwise, they'll sit on the first available seat, which is not, not a good thing to do. Um, I mean, currently, I'm just starting to use robots for teaching pupils with autism. And it's a sort of charming little robot, um, able to sort of teach life skills to pupils who are without speech, uh, are very, very vulnerable, but actually focus very well to a robotic teacher. Maybe they're not as threatened. So there's all sorts of things going on. And Another charity of mine, which is looks after 127 people with autism, um, is now using fingerprint technology instead of keys so that each uh, resident um, can get into their own room with their own fingerprint and they can't get into somebody else's and they can't lose the key, mm. all that. What do you wish your legacy to be? Well, part of my legacy, I'm, I'm so proud of the, my memoir, and it is a memoir rather than an autobiography. Um, and I'm so thrilled that it's being made into a film. And that might be my legacy that would actually inspire over the years. And I hope it will become a classic. I read in your book this phrase that really s struck me, and that is, I need to justify the fact that my life was saved. Do you still feel like that? And do you ever consider that actually you ultimately saved yourself? I think that feeling that I need to justify my own existence is as strong today as it was years ago. Um, I mean, I was five when that happened. I was six, seven, eight by the time I really began to realize what had happened and my part in a little bit of history. Um, but um, no, I still need to 
make sure that each day is worth living. Um, I don't think that's something that I have achieved. Next up is James Wise, a VC at Balderton Capital and author of Startup Century. Here, James talks about what he looks for when choosing to invest in a founder. What do you look for in a founder that you're choosing to invest in? What are the traits of the founder? In terms of people, there's some traits we all look for. Uh, I think creativity is a really important one. And often the discussion, especially when you look at technology businesses, suggests that you have to have you know, a deeply scientific mind to be a great technology CEO or, or, or founder. And certainly in certain areas, like at the moment, artificial intelligence, it helps to have a strong grounding in computer science, but that's not a requirement. So I don't think Sam Altman has a, a grounding in computer science, actually, historically. Um, oh, you know, it's actually, he did do, because I heard someone talking about that recently, saying he's not even technical. He started, according to his Wikipedia, he started a computer science degree and didn't finish it. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but it's, and there's lots of people like that, but they're actually creativity, I think, is a really important one. Um, and we look for that in many different ways, right? So it could be the particular unique approach that that individual has taken to building a business, or it could be something else in their past. I think competition matters a lot. So having a competitive nature is really integral, I think, sometimes with success of the business. And that's not like competitive in, it, it, obviously, we want people who, you know, when they see a challenge, they want to take it on and thrive. It's people who are competitive with themselves, that so they constantly want to get better and improve. And once again, that competition and that competitive nature can be worked out or teased out of someone in ways beyond just their business today, right? It could be, you know, maybe they were really competitive at chess as a kid or dance as a kid or sports, or they were, you know, incredibly competitive academically. But we, we'd often look for, for a sense of comp competitive nature, a desire to win. And competition matters as well because it almost certainly means they've been through failure before, right? There's almost no one who has been a competitive athlete and not lost a game or no one who's been highly competitive when they've been trying to do some, even just like getting jobs in other fields and they've not been turned down for something. And I think that resilience that being highly competitive brings to you because you have to lose in order to get better is a really important sub-trait of, of, of a competitive spirit. Uh, and then the finally, I guess, if I was to try and round it off is ambition. Right, so you can be competitive in in a field, but it might be a small field. You can be highly creative in a niche, and those are hugely respectable virtues and characteristics. But for the kind of investing that we do, for our model to work, we have to work with some of the most successful and, and therefore sort of category defining businesses in the world. And therefore, we need to find founders who are equally ambitious that want that level of achievement. It is not by any means the uh, virtue and, and and the characteristic I would say everyone needs. I certainly don't think that. I think there's many different fields in life in which you can be hugely successful without building a multi-billion dollar category defining software company. But for our model, we do need to see that sense of ambition. And once again, that's something you can generally tease out of people and they try and show. And then the question is, do they really understand the challenge that they're going to face if they're going to achieve what they want to to build a business of that scale impact. And here is Anna Anderson, the founder of Kindred, a co-working and event space in London where founders can gather and be part of a community. Anna discusses the importance of coming together as founders and how her beloved sister Zoe lives on through her. I wanted to create a space that was, well, a home is a bit, a bit cliche now, isn't it? But a third place, so not your home, not your office, somewhere in between, 
that is yours and that you can be however you want to be in that space and there isn't an expectation that at 5 p.m you get up and dance and put a silly hat on or whatever Mm. I just wanted people to to feel entirely comfortable and entirely accepted as they are and to use the space how they want to use it so if they wanted to come and work and have their meetings yeah great if they wanted to come and meet new people wonderful if they wanted to come for a dinner and bring their friends great you know I just think that we need more of these spaces that belong to more people because I do genuinely believe that people need to connect with others not only for their own benefit and their own health but for the benefit of the city that we live in for the benefit of the world if that's not too grandiose I do think that ideas that people have when they talk with one another are what changed the world. An entrepreneur might be thinking about going in one direction. They have a conversation with someone who is in a completely different field and then they meet in the middle and then they create something that really has value for a lot of people, whether it's a social business or a health or, or environmental or tech, whatever it is. And I think it's important that we create these spaces. So they have to be welcoming, they have to be warm and they have to meet people where they're at. We don't want to alienate anyone. And Though people are surprised when they hear that I identify as an introvert, you know, I I think we started off as me as a slightly serious, reserved child. That that child is still in me, you know. I, I get anxious in a cocktail party context, networking events. I find it stressful to have to connect with lots of people quickly. I've trained myself to bring on extroverted qualities just to help, you know, make things a bit easier. And I think Zoe as well, my sister, she was grade A extrovert and I have adopted some of her personality traits to kind of keep her going, if that makes sense. Mm. And I I think that that is a thing. But I wanted to create a space that didn't force you to be something that you're not, didn't expect you to be something that you're not, just you can just be here. And if you want to partake, you can. If you don't, you don't have to. And I think you asked about how we create community in those moments and they're really simple we gather everyone in the building if they want to join they don't have to and we just have a cup of coffee and we talk and set goals for the week or just say what happened last weekend or what is it that you're looking for or do you need to be introduced to anyone and the conversations that come out of that are powerful we have a cocktail hour at the end of a Friday just encourage people to switch off and connect and make friends And, and friendships have actually formed from those which when I can't sleep and like some stressed about this detail or that detail I kind of have to come back to the fact that we are making a bit of a difference you know we are bringing friendship into people's lives where they might not have easily found those people you know so I I, I do take pride in that. Josh Dahn is next and he was a teacher at Elon Musk kids school when Elon approached him to set up a completely new school called Ad Astra which means to the stars and it was for Elon's five eldest boys and also the other children of SpaceX employees. In this clip Josh talks about the early days of setting up the school and how they wanted to nurture a new generation of ethical and efficacious problem solvers. So the school starts in the fall of 2014 and a few months later these articles start coming out about it, um, partially maybe because Elon mentioned something in an interview that he gave. And there's all this speculation about the school. I think the Guardian called it like the most exclusive school in the world and all kinds of speculation about who's involved and, and what it's like and what the kids do all day. There's a Washington Post article that talked about, you know, kids that play with flamethrowers, you know, all this stuff. And from the, you know, from, from, from our end, you know, the people that were actually doing the work in the school, we were just... We just didn't want to be a thing, if that makes sense. Like we didn't want to be a distraction from what SpaceX and Tesla were doing. We didn't want it in any way to reflect negatively on Elon. And we also, 
especially when we were in this house, Gene Wilder's old house, as it turned out off of, uh, off of Sunset Boulevard in LA, like near UCLA, we were really fearful that the neighbors would call and, you know, we'd have to find another location because that was always like the really difficult thing to figure out. So we tried to just play it really cool, like not to share much online to do admissions, you know, really only through SpaceX families. So that was kind of just word of mouth. And you know, these articles came out and you know, a lot of the stuff was just not true. But what else, what else are you going to do? I mean, it doesn't, didn't really matter. We were a small school. We didn't need that many students. And as long as we could convince families to send their kids to the school, then that's really all that needed to happen. But, you know, thinking beyond just, you know, running the school and making sure that the project continued, you know, having that experience to Teach for America and knowing how most children are spending their days in school, I just really wanted Ad Astra to stand for something quite a bit more. And, you know, the obvious thing to do when you have resources is you just hire world-class people. And Elon, you know, at his companies has essentially one standard. And that standard is like he expects, you know, world-class people who are able to do unbelievable and unprecedented work. So, well, one of the logistical challenges early on was like, well, first of all, Elon wants to interview everyone that joins the school. So that's its own challenge because just because someone has their PhD from MIT doesn't mean that Elon thinks that they mm. are good enough to teach, you know, mm. pre-algebra or something like that, right? Which is like, that's, and that's Elon. He has that standard and it obviously serves him really well. Whereas I'm, you know, it was more practical. It's like, listen, yeah, maybe they, they aren't good enough to do avionics at SpaceX, but they certainly can do pre-algebra. You know, they're more than qualified to do this mm. sort of thing. So anyway, I guess what was important to me was that when people would come to visit the school, we've always been open, Ad Astra was always open to educators, and we always take calls with people that are you know looking to put schools together, is that we had something that was different and unique, and that if someone was going to say that Ad Astra was an innovative school, that you would be able to point to something and say, here's one of the experiments that we're running that I think is really unique and worth you know, maybe scaling or replicating elsewhere. So because I was running the school and because I had brilliant colleagues who were doing things like chemistry and, you know, economics and, and other courses, I focused my attention on this thing that I called synthesis, which started out, you know, going back to like Las Vegas and posing these questions with seemingly equivalent answers and having kids reason, you know, through like why this option and not that option, though all of them are defensible in some way. So it started there with kind of designing different case studies and designing different challenges. Then it eventually evolved into designing games. And it's the one thing that, you know, I would always highlight because it's one thing to have, you know, your science teacher have their PhD from Caltech and that's amazing. But if you are a school leader or a teacher at a school, I found at least when I was in Las Vegas that that kind of thing would just annoy me. I don't know how you can take a lot of credit for having just hired a brilliant person to teach children science when you have all the advantages of being at SpaceX and having, you know, Elon support. So it was important to us, or at least it was particularly important to me to have some honesty about what was a true product of ingenuity versus a product of, of resource. And synthesis became that thing that was became kind of in some ways the soul of the school, which is this maniacally experimental class that would focus on, you know, building more ethical and efficacious problem solvers. Next is Sarita Challenger, whose life was turned upside down after her husband Rob suffered a severe brain hemorrhage and stroke, which meant life was never to be the same again. Now a coach to founders, Sarita talks about finding your North Star and how the course that she has designed can help you do that. 
In terms of being a coach, I think it's an upcoming course is the North Star. I wanted to ask you what that course is going to entail and also what is your North Star? The course is a six week at your own pace investment for people to tap into my coaching wisdom at an accessible space and just to be able to reach as many people as possible because I know that especially at this time post-pandemic like we've all been through hard times and yes we've all been in the same boat but it's more like we've all been in the same storm rather than the same boat and our vessels have looked very very different so it's hard to stay steady and remember yourself so I guess the North Star to me was how to remain true to tap into what your purpose is what you what lights you up why are you here and what do you really want to do and it's only through questioning and honest reflection and deep work that we can start to unlock our truth because especially as working in the modern world that we are now and we're absorbed by our roles and potentially if we're caregivers whether it's our aging parents or potentially we're parents or we've got child with complex needs there are so many layers to modern life that kind of dampen our spirit and dampen our outlook so it was something that I wanted to put together to help people ask themselves the right questions to get in tune with their own inner compass and to be able to navigate where they want to be and where they really want to go to and I think it's also important to say that coaching isn't therapy as well there's a very fine line that it's got to be at a time when you're able to make those changes because there will be turbulence and you'll probably have big feelings rise up and maybe some frustrations, maybe some sadness, but the ultimate teacher is you to guide you back towards yourself. And I think that's the one lesson that I've learned over the last decade that I just wanted to impart with other people. Yeah, absolutely. I know loads of people that I think would find this very useful because I do think that it is, like you said, a natural evolution for you to do this. I think you're absolutely the right person. All that you've gone through, all the experience that you've had and your natural manner is what's going to help guide people through uncertain times. And I know lots of people going through that. And I do think there's something about midlife, which I'm at now, where you get to a point where possibly you've had children, you're halfway through your career and you get to a point where you go, is this what I want? Am I actually on the path that's going to take me to where I want? Because we we have our lives set out for us. We go to school to 18, then we go to university. Whatever we pick for GCSEs impacts what we do at uni. Whatever we do at uni impacts the career that we have. And then we just go for it. What is your North Star? I really struggle to articulate it. And I think it's curiosity of that ambition and finding an identity and truth. And I think that really taps into potentially from the uncertainty of growing up and all the racism, the experience that shaped me where I had to kind of dampen that and not hold tight to that. It's understanding that remaining true to yourself is actually the compass that will guide you. And where I tether it to is love and beauty and courage. And they are the core values and they would be my North Star. So it's remembering myself and who I am to then hold on to everything that I do put through those filters and keep taking inch by inch steps no matter how small the movement but just keep the momentum with those things in mind and I would say that would be how I would frame my north star it's wonderful the one little quick question on top of that one is I find that people get to this age midlife shall we say 
and they don't actually know who they are like you said to remember who you are are you able as a coach to help people find out who they are absolutely it's not for me to answer who you are either Mm. so you speak and I would listen I hold space I ask the questions I will listen some more and then together we find the way through and remember who you are and at times I will reflect and mirror what is said back but ultimately I'm holding space hearing sometimes it's not even what is said it's the space between what is said and not said and taking the conversation and the coaching session to a place where there is resistance as well and ultimately you will then unfold and be able to talk about what really matters to you understanding what lights you up understanding what you don't want sometimes is actually a big part of it of what what is really frustrating you right now what you don't want to do it's not a a quick fix it's a process to go through but fundamentally through those sessions as a team we can lead you back to your new way of being and sometimes it's not even a new way of being it's just remembering who you are Mm. and remembering what lights you up and putting those things back in place and coming up with a I guess to apply the business lens to it it's coming up with a strategy with consistency and sticking to it and seeing it through and it's the movement the momentum that you can have these opportunities to reframe where you go we have this one life we don't it's not for want of a, a cheesy catchphrase or something that quotes it's like it's not a dress rehearsal there's that realization of like right what am I actually doing and it might not be that you want to change the world and get a Nobel Peace Prize it just might be that you want to live a life of peace and actually stop people pleasing or you know go and live in that bossy overlooking the Isle of Skye I don't know it Mm -hmm. could be whatever it is but it's just to realize and own the truth and to have the courage to take the steps towards what that is and what that looks like for you because positive change really is possible and I think creating a life that you love is absolutely possible the possibilities are endless it just takes heart and it takes courage next up is Kelsey Hightower who has just retired from his developer advocate role at Google This episode really resonated with so many of you and was actually the most listened to this series So I wanted to share a clip where he gets a little more philosophical than usual and teaches us to be more hopeful during uncertain times. There was one quote that I also really enjoyed from you, which was, hope allows us to consider what's possible and try things without the guarantee of success. Hope gives us confidence when the numbers don't. Hope is an acceptable business strategy because it has worked before. And most business strategies are nothing more than structured hope, which I thought was fantastic. I wanted to ask you because I think you actually give people a lot of hope and I wondered how do you cultivate hope in a world which can sometimes feel extremely bleak? Uh Uh-oh, you're digging into the philosophical side. Well, that that is so much about you, right? As in not everyone gets to see it, but I think if you follow you for long enough, you see that side of you. I think in tech, one thing I learned is that the fundamentals, right? You know, some people look at a computer chip from Intel and they see this mystery. And then the people who work at Intel on chip design, they know it comes from sand. We turn sand into silicon to make processors for phones and laptops. And so they can see the world very simply because they know how it works. And so I always kind of push myself to say, man, do you really understand it? Can you break it down simply? And so the things I do, and I don't have the perfect answer But in order to give myself hope, I try to step back and zoom out 
And I think I was remember watching Neil deGrasse and he was explaining how the universe works. And he was talking about galaxies. Like there's lots of galaxies. The, the universe is bigger than you can comprehend. You take the earth and it will be yet a grain of sand in the universe or a galaxy. And so some people hear that and immediately want to go into depression mode because it's too big for them to understand. They can't control it. And so they feel small and they want to hide. Some people hear that and relax. The decision on where to eat tonight isn't that big of a deal, I promise you. It is not a huge deal in the grand scheme of things. Getting fired from your job, that sucks. It's terrible. But in the grand scheme of things, the world goes on and you can feel it. Like whenever you get hurt, whether physically or emotionally, the thing that tends to fix it is time. Either the wound will heal or you will forget. And you just move on and you get to kind of deal with the life that's in front of you. And so that time element is this humongous gift. And it gives us hope, actually. When you wake up in the morning, you realize that you got more time here. Whatever happened yesterday was yesterday. And at some point, you're ready to realize and you continue on. And so when I look at the world now, I try to separate it into its layers. And we do this in tech quite a bit. We look at everything at its layers. You see a mobile app. I see the Swift programming language running on a processor built by Apple. And so if you think about society, we have the physical infrastructure, the sun, the moon, the earth, the rivers, the lake, the air, the natural things that just occur. And that is shared infrastructure. Even if people want to draw lines and put up their flags, the earth was here before those ideas were here. And so then we get to this kind of this idea tier, right? So we have the reality, the real world as it is, the universe as it is. And then humans create this alternative reality, laws, governments, religion, hate, love, all of these things, we express ourselves. And sometimes they're just stories. And sometimes they're systems. I'm cheering for this team because they live near me and I want to see the other team lose. Or we have this shared problem that we want to solve. And a lot of the problems are just solving the other problems we created for ourselves. And I try to put all of those things at a layer. So these are human ideas that we convince each other that are worth pursuing and doing. But again, these are just human ideas. And honestly, as important as we want them to be, the king is important. Why? Because we said the king is important. And we all just agree that the king is important and is worthy of praise. But I separate that because I'm like, we just made that up. We made up the fact that there's a king. Maybe it does work. I'm not here to criticize whether the hierarchy works for people or not, but we literally made it up. And so I can turn that off. I can literally choose to ignore it. doesn't mean that I get to change how the world works, but I can literally choose to ignore that part of the situation and then go back to the fundamentals. What's available? What can I add to that particular set of ideas? Because I got ideas too, and I know how this works you can actually convince people and inspire people that these ideas are also worth pursuing. And as someone that's been in the tech field, we also have this other tool, software. We can turn these ideas, just like the writer or the poet can turn words into stories. Well, in the software world, we can contribute to this virtual reality we've created called society, and we can digitize it and give people the ability to understand other languages 
give people direction so they don't get lost, guide people to making better decisions, etc. And so the thing that makes me hopeful is that I know that this virtual thing that we've all created, these ideas, some of us can actually change them. And when you show people the ability to do that too, that's when they get a little bit of hope too. And you can see it. So when my hope meter starts to drop, just like everyone else, I'll pay attention to the world a little too much. And there's so much that comes in that if you don't have a filter, you will get overwhelmed. And so what I try to do is like, hey, I got to turn off the filter, right? We have eyes and ears that can only hear and see for a certain distance, probably for a reason. Because I don't think any human is capable of processing all of that information in real time and then being expected to be able to make adjustments on the fly. So I turn it off and I remind myself that there is things that you can do within a smaller domain. And so now I guess as an educator, as someone who can remind themselves and become hopeful again, sometimes though, you have to give that ability to others. And the last thing I'll say here is that people reach out to me for mentorship because I guess to your point, some people will watch those talks and those videos and they might get inspired, maybe not by the technology, but by the story behind the technology. And they asked me, Kelsey, what should I be doing? I want to be like you. I was like, great. It's always great to have a North Star, but I'm kind of unique for a reason. And there are probably parts that if you knew about, you probably wouldn't want one no part of. And so, But I say, when it comes to mentoring now, after all of these years, the thing I've learned that I think what a good mentor should do, or at least what I try to do, is... I'll listen to a person and my job as a mentor is to try to make a mirror and hold it up to them and convince them to like what they, what they see. And I think that part where you remind people of how much potential that they have, it does make them feel hopeful. And honestly, when they can see themselves and learn to like what they see, they get what I had, the ability to be authentic as myself and not having to pretend to be someone else. There's one more question I've got, which I always end with, but just based on what you just said there, was there someone that held up the mirror to you? I mean, in many ways, I don't know if people intentionally knew how to do that. Because when you think about the care your mother has for you, no matter what's happening, your mom's going to be there. You may not like what comes with that sometimes, but they're always going to be there. But I would say most people have not had enough time to sit down and understand what I just said. That takes a little bit more time of really thinking about it from a philosophical standpoint of what you're trying to achieve. And I do think a lot of those people have contributed to who I am. And I think what I've done is learn how to pay attention to what happens to other people. So you look at their scenarios. There's a quote of, you know, you shouldn't laugh at people when something bad happens to them because then you'll miss the opportunity to learn from them. And so I would watch people go through these various scenarios, an athlete that has lots of money and they go broke, a music artist signing a bad contract and being tricked out of all their royalties, or something simple like someone falling down the stairs. All of those things are lessons. And what I try to do is I try to self-reflect through their eyes in that scenario and say, man, what could I learn from that? Is there any adjustment I can actually make? Is there something I should be removing when I see someone behaving badly in public? Maybe if I think I have that particular trait, I should get rid of it quickly. If I see someone doing something that I admire or aspire to, I should do a litmus test to see if that's something that I should add to my own toolbox and just continue growing as a person. So I would probably say 
even if no one's done that intentionally because they didn't have the words to describe it the way that I have. But I know that you can actually learn if you're just willing to pay attention. Finally, here is a clip from the episode with James Vincent, a creative kid from Sheffield who felt like an outsider before finding his feet in the creative world and getting that call that changed his life from Steve Jobs. In this final clip today, James shares a valuable lesson he learned from Steve himself. One day I got a call, do you want to work with Steve Jobs? We've heard, you know, about tech and I think underneath it all was you've got an English accent and he likes Johnny Ive, so maybe he's going to like you too. But I, they never said that, but I guessed maybe. And Johnny's a friend and we worked together a lot, but obviously not at that time. And he was a legend and I wasn't. I was a little guy from Sheffield. But he said, yeah, so come on out and why do you meet Steve? Because um, of course I said yes to the question, do you want to work with Steve Jobs? And so I go out there and Lee Clow, who was the sort of big creative kind of mentor to Steve, he'd done 1984, Think Different. He was just looking for someone to carry the burden of, you know, taking care of this mad genius called Steve Jobs, or at least help him do it. And he said to me, look, the best advice I can give you is under promise and over deliver. Like just always, Steve will know when it's great. Like don't do any of the ad. Oh my God, we've cracked it. Oh, really? Good job with that, right? No, let him see it, help him see it, help him storytell, create the environment with which to buy, which I think what I was talking with John Hegarty a, a month ago. And I think that's what BBH were famous for. So yeah, I, I went in the room and was introduced by Lee as, you know, this young, smart, hot shot person that could help him. And the first thing he said to me was, uh, are you overhead? And I was like, well, I don't think so. But why don't you be the judge of that? You know, trying to channel Lee's advice, right? You be the judge of that. And what I came to realize later was actually a quote by Johnny Ive, which is such a beautiful quote. So I'll try to remember it accurately. Ideas are fragile. When they come up in a room, it depends on the people in the room as to whether that idea lives or dies. And it's not by accident that James was in the room when they went on to become big, beautiful products. So that was the quote he gave me after I left Apple. But it, it, you could take me out of it and just say, it, it depends on the people in the room. And so that was why he said, I don't want any overhead in the room. I don't want people breathing oxygen that can't contribute. Are you a creative person? Do you understand strategy? Do you understand culture? Do you understand what mission we're on? Can you contribute or not? You know, and I just said, you be the judge of that. I think he would have liked that, right? Because it takes quite courage to say something. I think if someone was a bit meeker, he might not have thought much of them. What was your first impression of Steve? Because obviously you've been given this heads up of what to expect, but nothing can really prepare you. You joined the company, you sat down in one of these intimate meetings that I, I know you're a part of every week for the time that you were there. What was he like in the meeting? What were those first impressions like? Because I'm sure over time it changed, but what was that first meeting like? Yeah, I mean, I changed because I figured out a little bit how to handle him and that my job was to pull the genius out of him. You know, it's that he had the genius, of course, in plentiful supply, but I had to sort of focus it on the project by showing him lots of ideas. So that was the practice I learned. But at the beginning, so my first experience, I walked in with someone else who was, I think, either doing my job or doing something like it. And I was just sort of listening. And this guy comes in and goes, Steve, we've got this incredible research. I want to present it to you, da, 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 click. Um, and he's on like slide three. And Steve looks over and he goes, how long is this presentation? And he's like, oh, it's like 72 slides. He's like, can you just go to page 72? <laughs> he goes to page 72. And then he's like, 
Hmm. Good job we didn't waste the other 71 pages. Mm -hmm. All right, what else you got? And I just sat there, I'm like, okay, well, no presentations. I never made a presentation to him once. Always took boards on ideas or scribbles or ideas, pictures, words, lines, stuff like that. No click, click, click. No patience for that. Engage with him directly, peer-to-peer. Engage with him, show him ideas, write things on walls, like be sort of demonstrably, intimately peer-to-peer and have a relationship with him, not looking up at a board. And so I just had to learn very quickly those sometimes tough lessons of, I could tell you another story, which is a fascinating one and people like to retell. So I'll, I'll try to try to tell it for you. So we did this meeting every week, the Marcom meeting for two hours. And it was every single week for 11 years. So, you know, it, I had a lot of creative people, a lot of strategists, a lot of great Great idea, people bringing loads of it. And our job was to edit it and put it in front of Steve and try to do three things with every meeting was kind of my rule. Let's try and do three. And we'd sit down and go, okay, Steve, we've got uh, three things today, this and this and this. And okay, the first one. So, because he liked one conversation. So I'd always go back to, so when you left us last week, you liked this, but you didn't like that. This is interesting, but this is, you know, he's doing a, a million other things. I want to keep him on one track. And of course I've emailed and talked to him every day since, but I was in, back in the room with him responsible for a two-hour conversation being vital and 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 stimulating and interesting and the good ideas not dying. And so most meetings were pretty good. There was at least one thing that went well. Some were great. It's like, oh, I love that. And that's pretty good. And I'm not sure about that one. That was a great meeting. But sometimes everything died. Actually, a lot of times everything died. Like a thousand no's for every yes was an Apple mantra, which is unbelievably painful. You know, like if uh, I used to say to people coming to work for Media Arts Lab as creative people, I'd say, look, you're going to do your best work here. But along the way, some of your best ideas will simply die. You have to be okay with that. And you have to know that the person killing it is one of the greatest geniuses the world has ever seen. So you have to be okay with that, you know. But I know you're going to tell me that was freaking awesome and would have won every award. Like the things we didn't run, would, would have crushed, you know, just as much as the ones we mm. did run. So anyway, this one particular day, everything we presented just went flat. I don't think, I'm not going to blame it on him. Maybe he wasn't in a good mood. Maybe the work was bad. Who knows? So, you know, it was lots of sort of, you know, you just brought the C team today and that, you know, there's no great work here. So don't waste my time. And anyway, I was like, okay, well, we'll see you next week. And I grabbed the stuff. I'm like, out of here. Right. So we got the team in, scooped everybody. I tried to get out of the door as fast as I could. Just leaving, he's like, James, can you just stop back for a minute, please? Have a seat. So I sit down in this, you know, big Apple boardroom in Cupertino, now the world's biggest company, with the CEO, Steve Jobs. And he says to me, I just want to tell you a story. To know like, oh, you messed up or da, da, just want to tell you a story. He said, a long time ago, the famous Secretary of State for the US in the middle of the Vietnam War commissioned a report about what America was going to do in Vietnam. And the analyst who was had 25 years experience wrote this incredible report, got every possible thread, wrote it to him, sent it to him. And it came back two days later and said, is this the best you can do? And he was like, oh shit, maybe I forgot like the Chinese influence and the history of the, let me rewrite it, sends it back. Two days later, it comes back. Is this the best you can do? He's like, oh, no, maybe I forgot like Russia or the impact of historical resonance within the Viet Cong or I don't know. Let me rewrite it again. Right, so again. Um, yet again, two days later, it comes back. Is this the best you can do? So he grabs the folder and he just like marches into his office, smacks open the door and he goes, yes, this is the best I can do. And he goes, 
okay, great. I'll read it then. <laughs> so I just got up and left and he told me it's my responsibility to make that meeting great. And if it's not, then you shouldn't be sleeping or resting or like you brought me not good enough stuff. You need to edit better. You need to hire better people. You need to fire not good people. Like just personal accountability. Stephen himself was an incredible genius, but he's also very good at bringing the best out of everybody around him. He did that to everybody. Um, but that was my lesson and I, I took it with me. This draws our series 11 recap to a close and I hope you enjoyed this series as much as I did. And a huge thank you as always to my brilliant guests, Sarita Challenger, Mike Slade, Dame Stephanie Shirley, James Wise, Anna Anderson, Josh Darn, Kelsey Hightower and James Vincent. And you can head to wherever you get your podcast from to listen to all eight episodes in full. Also, a huge thank you to Rosebud, the number one AI-powered journaling app for mental health and personal growth, for sponsoring today's episode. You can find a link to try it out for free yourself in the show notes. Finally, I want to leave you the quote today, and it is from Charlie Munger, the legendary investor who sadly passed away this week, age 99. I think this is a rule for life, which I think we could all live by. He said, develop into a lifelong self-learner through voracious reading, cultivate curiosity and strive to become a little wiser every day.